1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Holger Dressler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Amalani Case, a Kanaka Maoli lecturer in Pacific Studies at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand, about her new book, Everything Ancient Was Once New, Indigenous Persistence from Hawaii to Kaiki, fresh out from University of Hawaii Press. In the book, Emalani explores indigenous persistence through the concept of kaiki, a term that describes both an ancestral homeland for native Hawaiians and the knowledge that there's life to be found beyond Hawaii's shore. Emalani frames kaiki as a sanctuary, a place where ancient knowledge can constantly be made anew. It is in kaiki, she argues, and in the sanctuary it creates, that today's Kanaka Maoli can find safety from the continued onslaught of settler colonial violence while also confronting some of the often uncomfortable realities of being indigenous in Hawaii, in the Pacific, and in the world. Emilani Case, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Emilani. I wonder if you could begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. Um, aloha mai kākou. Um, first of all, it's, it's just a pleasure to be here and to share this space and this time with you. Um, You know, I think in introducing myself, it's only appropriate to start with where and who I come from. Um, So my name is Lani Case, and I come from a place called Waimea on the island of Hawaii. Um, And why that's important is because I think when I think about who I am, even as somebody who's now living in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, who I am is very much a reflection of where and who I come from. Um, so Waimea is a small town um, that is known for very stinging, hard rain. <laughs> um, and I like to think that I was sort of shaped and um, kind of trained in that rain growing up. Um, what that means, you know, I think I keep interpreting and reinterpreting over time, but um Prior to European contacts, one of our prominent chiefs, Kamehameha, used to train his soldiers in Waimea, where I come from, mm. um, because of the rain. And the rain actually has a name; it's called the Kipuupu'u rain. And he named some of his soldiers after that rain. Um, so they would train in these kind of harsh conditions. Um, and I often wonder what that that rain trained me for growing up. Um, I don't know if I have a definite answer, but I, I, I there have been times in my life where I think, oh, maybe that rain was, was training me to withstand some, um, some pain here and there or to withstand and, and endure some um, deep and heavy issues. It's something that kind of evolves as I, as I grow. But that's where I come from. And um, you know, to kind of introduce you to, again, where I come from and how that shaped me, um, my mountain is Mauna Kea um and my my rivers are Waikoloa and Koha Kohau um my hillsides are Hoku'ula, Oa Owaka and Pu'uki. and I and I mention all of that because who we are as indigenous peoples is so intimately connected to where we come from in our landscapes um the mountain Mauna Kea, I also wanted to mention because Mauna Kea, um is something it is a mountain I talk about a lot in the book I talk about the ongoing movement and effort to protect Mauna Kea from desecration. Um, Mauna Kea is not just my mountain; it's my ancestor, something that I, I view myself and experience myself as being genealogically related to. Um, so that's where I come from, and and who I come from. I come from um, from Hawaiian ancestors and non-Hawaiian ancestors, and I have a you know a genealogy that is quite mixed and diverse. Um, but you know, more, more immediately in my immediate family, I come from people who are activists and who modeled what it means and what it feels like and what it looks like to constantly stand for the protection of place, what we call Aina, um, and to stand for indigenous rights. And so I, 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 this book wouldn't be possible, my work wouldn't be possible without the places and the people that have fed and nourished me. Um, And that actually continued to feed and nourish me even while I live um, thousands of miles away. Um, But that's a little bit about where and who I come from. But to also give you more background, um, as was already mentioned, I'm currently a lecturer in Pacific Studies at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand. How I came to that um, is interesting. I, I actually was an English major when I first went to university and I studied at the University of Hawaii in Hilo. Um, And Mm -hmm. I always loved to write. And so I went into being an English major because I actually just wanted to engage with stories and engage with writing and and think about what kind of writer I could be. Um, I then went on and did my master's at the University of Hawaii um, at Manoa, and again, majored in English. And it was there that I was really introduced to the power of Pacific literature and to the work of Pacific authors. and so when I thought about doing a Ph.D., I, I took some time after my master's to work and um, I taught in English and I, I taught writing classes. And I also taught in Hawaiian studies and taught some Hawaiian language. Um, and then I really started to think about a Ph.D. and I went on, um, you know, really wanting to build on my love for Pacific literature. I decided to to explore Pacific studies. Um, and that's what brought me to um, to New Zealand, where I'm currently based. Um, I did my PhD here at Victoria University. Um, My mentor was the amazing Teresia Tewa. Um, I consider myself incredibly blessed to have studied with her. Um, We lost her quite tragically back in 2017. um, Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to be able to work with her, to learn from her, um, to have her really push my understandings of the Pacific and to challenge me in really productive ways. And I ultimately came back to New Zealand to teach um, after her passing, and I'm now teaching um, some of her courses and I'm part of the program that she that she created. And so um, that's a little bit about me culturally and and academically. Um, Yeah, I think that 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 might sum it up for now. You'll learn a lot more (laughs) about me as I talk about the book, I suppose.
1: Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for, that, uh, for that background. Yeah. The mm-hmm. next question is really about the book itself. Now, yes. how did you come to write this, this slim, but so powerful book about kahiki?
2: <laughs> oh, it's, um, I think it's a kind of a funny story in that I, so I studied kahiki. Um, that was what my PhD research was all about. Um, and when I came to Aotearoa, I, I didn't intend on studying kahiki, Um, Hmm. I thought I'd actually write something more along the lines of language revitalization because I had just recently, and, and, and writing, writing styles in our native languages. Um, when I came here to do my PhD, I had just left the Hawaiian studies department at the university of Hawaii at Hilo, where I was teaching Hawaiian language, um, and also teaching um, Hawaiian studies courses. And so that was sort of what I was focused on when I first got here. And then, um, when I arrived in Aotearoa, I really allowed this place to inspire what I eventually ended up studying. Um, so when I got here, I started to learn about narratives of Hawaii, And Hawaii is where Tangata um, Whenua or Maori here in Aotearoa, say they came from. Um, and I started to think about our own narratives from Hawaii. And I had grown up learning about kahiki. Um, I didn't mention it earlier, but I'm a trained hula dancer. Um, So I've been dancing and chanting and and telling stories through hula my entire life. I actually started learning hula with my cousin Pua Case before I ever went to school. Um, And in some of the the dances, you know, our our hula really is so powerful and so important because it tells our stories and it tells our histories. Um, And I, I engaged with kahiki at a really young age and was always kind of curious about it, but never actually thought that would be something I could study. And so when I came to Aotearoa and started to learn stories about Hawaii, that really got me thinking more about Kahiki and how I could really dig into what it meant um, at different points in time. So that's when I started to study Kahiki Um, and my whole PhD, which was much longer than the book I ended up publishing um, was about kahiki and exploring, you know, what it meant and, and how it was understood in in oral traditions, in songs, in proverbs, in chants, um, and then looking at how people used this concept of a homeland at different points in history. And I'm sharing all of this background because it's it's what eventually led up led to the book. Um, but what's important to note is that Kahiki isn't a physical place on the map. It's more the idea and it's the knowing that we came from somewhere else and migrated from somewhere else in the Pacific before arriving in Hawaii. So I wrote this PhD thesis. Um, and I, uh, sorry, here in Aotearoa, we call it a thesis, but it's it basically a dissertation. Um, and I submitted that as a book manuscript. I made some small changes here and there. Um, and then I submitted it to university of Hawaii press and, um, and to be considered for publication under a series called Indigenous Pacifics, uh, which is co-edited by my colleague here at Victoria University and Pacific Studies, Dr. April Henderson, and also Dr. Noila Nikujirka Opua based at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. So I submitted the, the, dissert, uh, the manuscript that was really basically my PhD thesis and that was accepted for publication. Um, when I got the reviewer's comments, so it went out for review, the reviewers basically said it was, you know, that it was good, that I could probably mm-hmm. publish it as it was, but they pushed me. And I will forever be grateful to these two reviewers because they said, it's good, but we think you can do better. And we want to hear more from you. And we want to hear more about Kahiki and what it means. And basically they pushed me. Um And I, again, am so thankful that they saw something in my work and and actually wanted more. I took that as a huge compliment that they wanted to hear more from me and what kahiki meant for me. And so I realized when I looked back at my PhD work that I, I did a whole lot of work to look at what kahiki meant to other people, but didn't fully dig into what it could mean for me and what it could mean for our movements, particularly our movements to protect place. So... In a kind of crazy move, I don't know if I'd recommend this, I took the manuscript that had technically already been accepted and that the reviewers and editors said only needed some revision, and I Mm -hmm. basically rewrote it. So I took out entire chapters. um, I rearranged the pieces that I wanted to keep, and I added a lot of new content, and um, my colleague and my dear friend here, Dr. April Henderson, she and I have this very vivid memory um, because she's one of the editors of the, the series that my book is published with. We have this very vivid memory of me um, walking up to her one afternoon at our office and saying, hey, April, how much am I allowed to change? And very nervously, she said, what are you thinking? And I said, I just, I, I feel like I have to rewrite parts of this I just feel like I can't the thesis at that point the PhD manuscript had felt so old to me by that time and I felt like there was so much more that I could do and thankfully she trusted me and she said okay do what you need to do and so um that's why the book is 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 so much shorter actually because I just I thought if I want to say these things about kahiki I actually think I need to take a lot out um and really focus on the messages that I want to um that I want to centralize in the book um, and I wanted to make the book more accessible. I wanted it to speak to our, our, our social movements today. I wanted it to be relevant to the now. Um, and so I rearranged and rewrote big portions. And thankfully when I resubmitted the new manuscript, it went out for a second review and um, the, the reviewer came back and said, publish it. Um, and I, yeah, so I was so blessed in that one, the editors trusted me. And two, that, you know, UH Press provided that opportunity. So that's a little bit about the the book and, um, yeah, how I even came to to write it. Um, it was a process of kind of PhD work and then a lot of rewriting and rethinking and reengaging with Kahiki.
1: Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask you more about Kaiki now, the um mm part of the title and mm-hmm. uh, the central concept uh, that you've already touched on. Yeah. It seems like you're not the only uh, scholar that has recently returned to Kaiki. Um, Kialani Cook's recent book yes. uh, of the same title, Return to Kaiki mm-hmm. talks about native Hawaiians and Oceania uh, in an earlier period in the second yeah. half of the 19th century. And you are taking the story. I mean, you, you move through centuries, but uh, you have mm-hmm. definitely a more, more of a focus in the, in the early 21st century, um, the recent years. So uh, can you tell us more about what Kaiki actually is, how it changed over time, and why you chose to have uh, Kaiki as your central theme of the book?
2: Sure, sure. Thank you for that question. And I just want to give um, a bit of a shout out to Kialani Cook. Um, You know, when I introduced myself earlier and said where I come from, Kialani and I both come from Waimea. Um, So we come from the same place. Um, And I remember a few years back, he and I actually ended up working at the same university. We were both at the University of Hawaii in West Oahu. And it just kind of was funny that we both come from the same place. And without realizing it, we both went on to kind of study the same thing. And we were fascinated by kahiki and and presented it in very different ways. But I've drawn a lot from his work and I'm I'm really thankful um, just for his scholarship and for who he is as, as, as a kanaka as well. Um, but to give you a bit more background on, on Kahiki, as I explained earlier, it, it's the concept of a homeland, um, an ancestral homeland away from Hawaii. So we can find in our, in our um, archives of songs and chants and dances and prayers even and proverbs, we can see references to Kahiki. And why I say it's not really a specific spot on a map is because you can actually see people refer to kahiki and, and then um, kind of clarify afterwards that, that it, it, kahiki doesn't mean Tahiti. It could mean Tahiti, um, which is often the assumption that people make, but it could also be so much more. And so I mm. understand kahiki as being, again, this knowing that we migrated from somewhere else and that, this, that we have this base in the Pacific. Really importantly, though, when Hawaiians, after European contact... Kahiki eventually over time evolved, and it wasn't just used to refer to this ancestral homeland. It was actually then used to refer to any place outside of Hawaii. So Europe could be Kahiki. America could be Kahiki. Any place outside of Hawaii could be Kahiki. So you see, as Kanaka, as Hawaiians had these evolving engagements with the outside world, Kahiki evolved with them. And became the term that they had then used to explain their changing experiences with the world. Um, in the, you know, the, in the 1800s, um, around the time America is in Hawaii, and and they, you know, you see the overthrow of of the Hawaiian monarchy in 1893, the illegal overthrow of the monarchy, and the later annexation. You can find in the Hawaiian language newspapers. Um, and there were many, many Hawaiian language newspapers, and there was such a, a wealth of literature being um, developed at that time. You can find people really playing with kahiki and and using it in strategic ways to express either their loyalty to the monarchy um, and therefore their their protest and resistance against Im- um, American imperialism, or sometimes their supports of American of America coming into Hawaii. So you see, what I took away from doing that research in the Hawaiian language newspapers is that you saw kanaka maoli who were empowered enough to use these old concepts strategically, you know, who didn't look at this concept and, and say kahiki is something that can't be touched, that can't be changed, but rather looked at it and said, how can I continue to use this concept, just like my ancestors have done, to now explain what we're experiencing today? So you could see people saying, hey, kahiki is like this Pacific." Um, homeland, it's our connection to the Pacific. So maybe we can use Kahiki to turn our attention back towards the region that we are a part of. And that was used as a means of resisting, again, um, American encroachment. But at the same time, you can see other people saying, well, Kahiki is also everything outside of Hawaii. And so you could see people kind of reinterpreting old proverbs and old prayers that talked about kahiki and then would say things like, well, America does have a place in Hawaii. Our kahiki, our kahiki narratives have proved that. Um, so I was really fascinated with those changes. And that's what I really looked at in my Ph.D. Um, or while I was writing my Ph.D., and so when it came time to really revise the book and rethink the book, I thought about what kahiki could mean for us today. And, I, and I'm very honest in the book in that I say kahiki isn't something that people talk about all the time. It's not a term that we use all the time. It kind of exists in our memories um, and in our, you know, our chants and proverbs and et cetera, but it's not something that you'll find Hawaiians talking about all the time. And so I had to ask Mm -hmm. the question and I asked the question in the book, you know, if it's a term that we're not always using, does it need to be? Is there purpose in reviving it and trying to, you know, reinvigorate it um, for for contemporary times? And I I do think it's such a powerful concept. So what I tried to do in the book is kind of propose new ways that we can continue to use it and give it new function, actually. And so kind of building off of the title of the book, Everything Ancient Was Once New, I'm trying to take this ancient concept and renew it and constantly make it new so that it can continue to be ancient for generations to come so that they can follow in our footsteps and follow in the footsteps of the ancestors who I've been following and add to it and see what it can mean for them in the years to come. And so in the book, Um, even though the book does focus on different social movements and and has a huge focus on um, indigeneity, what it means to be indigenous, um, and also on on protecting place and protecting our rights in place, Kahiki is the concept that that strings it all together, that brings it all together. And I try to talk, I frame Kahiki as a sanctuary. Um, And that I have to give credit to uh, puʻuhonua or Hulu, which is puʻuhonua in Hawaiian means sanctuary. It means place of refuge. And in 2019, um, in the ongoing movement to protect Mauna Kea, um, and if you need a little bit of background, Mauna Kea again is our mountain, um, our tallest mountain in Hawaii. It's the mountain that I grew up with and around. Um, and Mauna Kea is at the center of some really long-standing debates about development, particularly about telescopes. So there are already 13 telescopes on the top of Mauna Kea right now, um, and and many of us have been engaged in this ongoing movement for a long time now, but we're trying to um, prevent the construction of a 30-meter telescope on the mountain. And so in 2019, the governor of Hawaii had actually given the green light for construction to begin, and so while I was here in Aotearoa, um, people back home had gathered at the base of Mauna Kea and they were near um, a place called Pu'uhulu Hulu. Um, and what they essentially did is they created a Pu'uhonua, they created a place of sanctuary and that ended up being called Pu'uhonua o Pu'uhulu Hulu, the sanctuary of, of Puuhuluhulu. Um, and why that was so important is because they needed to create a place of safety where kiai, or protectors of the mountain, whether you're Hawaiian or not, could come and feel like they could engage and help in in actively protecting the mountain, but also feel safe. Um, so there were rules um, at the Pu'uhonua. Um, people had to abide by uh, Kapu Aloha, which is a tapu or a taboo. It's like a, a you know, it's a it's rules that you set down that that everyone will act with aloha, with love, with courtesy. Um, that the resistance or that the movement would be nonviolent. Um, and so in 2019, I actually went home um, because I was here in Aotearoa and I was watching people being arrested at home. I was watching the ways with which the state, you know, didn't really know how to handle nonviolent resistance and aloha. And they, they, you know, responded with violence. Um, and I was crushed. I was I, I couldn't really sit here and watch what was happening back home and not try to be of that movement Um, and it wasn't just being part of the movement I felt called to go home after as I often tell people I it was like I couldn't breathe I was watching elders get arrested I was watching my people struggle and I I just I got I came to work one day and I said I need to go home and so I did Mm -hmm. and I went home and I went home to the I went home to the sanctuary and it wasn't until I then returned to Aotearoa afterward that I thought kahiki can be a sanctuary. A sanctuary is not a place that you're supposed to remain in permanently. You're not supposed to live in a sanctuary. And I build on Hawaiian understandings of Pu'uhonua and Hawaiian understandings of sanctuary. And I use that in the book. It's not just a place of safety. It's actually a place where you go and do some really deep thinking. Um, and honua in Hawaii, um, prior to European contact, that's where anyone who broke a kapu or who broke a law they would go there for safety, but it wasn't just sort of the place where you escape any punishment. It's where you would also go to do the work that you needed to do um, before re-entering society. And so I frame Kahiki as this place where we can constantly recall recall our ancestral connections and use them in ways that are empowering, but also where we need to go to do some of the really heavy intellectual and spiritual and cultural work um, as we move forward in our in our movements. Um, not only to protect place, but move forward um, in our movements to protect the larger region, the Pacific region. So it's not just this comfortable place. It's actually it can be and should be, I think, at least that's what I argue in the book, a place where we do some of that uncomfortable work as well.
0: Mm-hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.
1: I'm really interested in the scale of the concept of Kaiki. Mm. Um, As you write, uh, it's not Hawaii. It could be Tahiti. Um, Yes. It could be the rest of the Pacific or even the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm really wondering um, how you think about these different scales and if, if Kaiki can really... Sort of refer to all of those um, yeah. spatial scales for different people at mm-hmm. different times. Mm-hmm. Um, what What do you? What's your take on that?
2: Yeah, that's an excellent question. And you know what's kind of funny is when I first got here and um, and told people that I was studying kahiki. Um, Mm-hmm. the only reference that I had to kind of help people understand what that meant was Hawaii. So I would say, oh, it's kind of like studying mm-hmm. Hawaii. And anybody who knew what Hawaii was would go, whoa, that's huge. <laughs> how do you, you know, how do you even handle that? Um, and so, you know, today, even as I continue to engage with Kahiki and, um, and think about it, it's kind of that huge scale that keeps me continuously fascinated with it. Um, It can be, yes, my Pacific homeland, but it can also be the whole world. And there's something that can be that I think initially when I started doing this research, I found that quite overwhelming. I found the scale overwhelming. How do you even begin to talk about something that could be the whole world, but could also be as intimate as this is where my ancestors came from? Um, And I think what I found quite powerful is that it's because of that scale that I'm allowed to play with it a little bit. And in particular situations and circumstances and contexts, I'm able to pull on one or all of those meanings. Um, In our language, in the Hawaiian language, we often have words that mean multiple things. And one of the beautiful things about composing in Hawaiian is that sometimes you can use words really strategically um, to mean one thing or to mean all things. And I think kahiki is one of those things, one of those words that when I use it, I can, you know, I can, I can use it to refer to, yes, my Pacific homeland or to the rest of the world at at once if I want to. Or I can pick and choose which interpretations I want to forefront. Um, Epeli Hawofa, the amazing Oceanian scholar, has this great line in, um, I think it's in his essay, Past to Remember, where he says, that's what we've been doing all along we as peoples in the Pacific and actually around the world as well, we always choose quite strategically what parts of history we want to forefront, what concepts we want to forefront. We choose from our, he says, our vast storehouses of knowledge. And we we selectively um, use the ones that are going to help us to push our own agendas. And I think Kahiki, like all other concepts is like that. I can choose the parts of it that I want to use. Um, Depending on and how, depending on how I need it and how it's going to help me to push particular um, agendas, as as Ho'ofa says. So um, I'm trying to remember what your initial question was, but I I think just in thinking about the scale of Kahiki, um, what once was quite overwhelming and, and kind of daunting for me has actually I think given me the permission that I needed to. Um, to propose new ideas, you know, because it's so massive, Mm -hmm. I could add to it, (laughs) um, and make it even bigger, you know, but in, in the book, um, I, I focus on multiple interpretations of Kahiki, but one of the things that I, I, I'm really drawn to is the fact that it's a non-physical space. Um, and I think it's in the last chapter where I get into the idea of, or the power of having these non-physical spaces, you know, having more of these ideological spaces that we can continue to visit and 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 that aren't um, going to be threatened in the same ways that our physical lands um, and spaces are, are threatened um, with ongoing settler colonialism, and, you know, et cetera. So I think there's kind of power in in trying to learn how to navigate, and 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 this is something I'm still trying to learn how to do, but how to navigate these non-physical spaces. Um, and, and to see what they can mean for us today.
1: That's fascinating. I mm. I wanted to follow up on an, a point you made earlier that uh, the concept of kaiiki is not used in everyday discourse. That's, that's yeah. from sort of mm. the middle of your book. Mm-hmm. And um, you mentioned this, um, and I was wondering why that is. And um, mm. what do you think the chances are that your book, <laughs> and maybe other books <laughs> also, and other conversations in other settings – um could help to reintroduce the term kahiki and also the uh, sort of philosophy and the thinking around it. Mm.
2: Yeah, you know I I like I said earlier because I I grew up dancing hula, I knew about kahiki and I think kahiki often exists in those mm-hmm. contexts, you know, hula contexts or people who Um, engage in learning um, histories through reading oral traditions, et cetera, you'll you'll often have an awareness of it, but it's not often used, it's not used in in everyday conversation. And and there could be multiple reasons for that. Um, If I just had to kind of guess, I think one is the fact that, you know, um, at one time, our language was was banned and outlawed, and so not everyone speaks Hawaiian. And, and if you don't speak Hawaiian, you don't have the same kind of access to resources that talk about where you come from and that use terms like kahiki. Um, if you're not in a in a hula school for or a halo and you're not le- actively learning these things, you might not even know it exists. Um, you might not know about the concept kahiki. So there's there's that. Um, but also, I think with colonialism and with with being um, occupied by the, by the United States. Believe it or not, there are a lot of people who, who's, uh, whose associations are strongest with the states, you know, and so there might not be as, as much of a need to think about Kahiki and where you come from in the Pacific because you just understand mm-hmm. yourself as being American. Um, and so, you know, part of, of why I value the work of people like Kealani Cook and, and David Chang as well, who I, I mentioned in the book, is because they call us back to the Pacific, and they help us to remember outside of those contexts of hula and, and mele and oli or chant and dance and song that we have these um, that we have these specific connections. And another person who I want to mention who um, and I think this is really important because she very recently passed away is Haunanike Trask. Um, and she right. was an amazing manawa, you know, Manawahine, an amazing woman, activist, scholar, intellectual. Um, and though she may not have used kahiki by name, one of the things that I've always loved about, you know, at least the interviews that you see um, that you can find online and the things that she wrote is that she was always trying to orient us back to the Pacific. She was very clear in, in telling, you know, people who weren't from Hawaii and who weren't Hawaiian and telling Hawaiians as well that when you're in Hawaii, you're in Polynesia, you're in the Pacific, it's not America and though she may not have been using the term kahiki, she was talking about kahiki. She's talking about if, if you understand yourself as being in Hawaii and then as being as in the Pacific, you're calling upon those, those ancestral connections. You're calling upon, upon kahiki, even if you're not using the term. And so part of what motivates me to continue to use kahiki is I feel like it gives people the language. It gives people that term that then... Can encapsulate those ancestral connections that belonging to the Pacific region, that sense of obligation to the Pacific region. It gives you a term to use to talk about why and how you know we are actually disconnected from America. It gives it gives people the language. Um, So again, there, there there might be multiple reasons why we're not using it all the time. One, I think sometimes people just don't even know. Um, and other uh, on some level, I think we just, we're out of practice. We haven't been using it. We haven't been thinking about it enough outside of of, of particular contexts. And so putting Kahiki into a book like this and really trying to build on the work of people like Kialani and, and those who've, who've written about Kahiki before him is to normalize it in other spaces and to hopefully get other people to start using it and, and thinking about it and expanding on it. Um, and giving us their own interpretations as well. Because I do think it's a really, po- a really powerful concept um, that, that's ours and that we can own and that we can continue to shape and recreate um, for the future.
1: Yeah. Uh, I wanted to follow up asking you about your positionality in Aotearoa New Zealand. Mm-hmm. You've already mentioned it a few times. And um, in one of the later chapters, you, you write about uh, the triangle of settler colonialism. Yes. settlers indigenous people um and i think to Ver according to Veracini, exogenous others which yes. <laughs> sounds a little bit um uh, uh sort of generic uh, and okay. uh, and vague and yes. you prefer the term arrivants um mm-hmm. if, i don't mm-hmm. know if you pronounce that correctly yes. um and you see yourself as an arrivant um coming from hawaii to, mm-hmm. our, to Aurora, another mm-hmm. um, settler colony. So yes. I wanted to ask you about that uh, and how that uh, has shaped your mm-hmm. your research uh, with this book, um, mm-hmm. and uh, what that what your book can also, I think, uh, you know, how it can change the conversation about mm-hmm. um, uh, trans-Pacific sort of settler colonialism and resistance against it.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um- yeah, moving to Aotearoa has just oh, it's taught me. It's challenged me in in ways that I've um, that I think have been quite generative for me. Um, it's pushed me to really think about indigeneity in ways that I never would have been challenged to think about at home. At home in Hawaii, I am the indigenous person. Um, so when I moved to Aotearoa, I I just really had to think about what that meant. Um, what does it mean to be to identify as being indigenous, but to no longer be living on the land that you're indigenous to, um, and so in one of the chapters, um, I do write about that, and I, I take some time to explore my own positionality here. And the reason I do that, and how the reason I do that in the book, and how that relates to kahiki, is because sometimes when we draw upon these ancestral connections um, and this knowledge that we we are related to one another, sometimes we can actually use kahiki in or other terms, you know, other Pacific peoples have different terms, whether it's Hawaii or another or another name, we might use those ancestral connections in kind of damaging ways. Um, in other words, uh, or to give you an example, I could move here and live here and say, well, we're all part of the Pacific. And so that gives me certain rights. And that means that I can kind of claim a certain kind of belonging here. I've actually heard people say, well, we're all indigenous to the region. So, you know, that that should afford me certain certain rights here and i I don't think that that works um and so when i moved here i said i don't want to lean on kahiki to make myself feel too comfortable i actually want to use kahiki to challenge myself to really explore my positionality to do that kind of uncomfortable work and that goes back to what i said earlier about sanctuaries not just being these peaceful places where you're you know relaxing and everything feels good sometimes you actually have to do the work um before re-entering society. So in that chapter, I try to do some of that work to understand who I am in this place. Um, and I tell a, a bit of a story in there about how, when I first came back to Aotearoa, cause I studied here initially, and then I moved home and worked for a little while and then moved back when I got this position. And when I moved back and, and went into this role here at the university, I was pretty insistent in, on calling myself a settler. Um, and what I found is that it actually made a lot of people uncomfortable. It made my Pacific friends uncomfortable, but, but perhaps I don't want to say more important, importantly, but more, um, I think this, this helped me to kind of push my analyses of, of settler. Uh, It made my Maori friends uncomfortable. Um, and what I realized is that, and, and many of my Maori friends were like, no, like we acknowledge that you're not from here, but don't call yourself that. We don't like you calling yourself that. We want to call you this. And so some people would say, we actually would prefer to call you manuhiri, which is like a you know a visitor or somebody who isn't from here or a guest. I had other people who said, no, you're tuakana. Tuakana is like a reference to an older sibling. Um, and so they they would draw on these these connections and these, this this knowledge of ancestral connection in the Pacific, and they'd give me other names. And I was a little bit resistant of those names at first, because again, I didn't want to make myself feel too comfortable in a country that isn't mine, um, where indigenous people are still oppressed and marginalized and, and need to be supported in their fight for, and their, their stand for, um, for tiratanga, for self-determination and sovereignty. And so I didn't want my positionality to get in the way of that. But what I learned in the process is that when I insisted on calling myself settler, I then re-centralized or centralized the settler state as being the organizing, you know, entity around which I understand myself and organize my life and the lives of those around me. And so I had to challenge myself to think beyond the settler and indigenous binary and so that's where I found, you know, Vericini's work and, and his use of the term exogenous other, which is quite vague and is quite broad. And, and I kind of talk about, you know, in the book, why I don't go into kind of really breaking that category apart. Um, but I did find, you know, there are other scholars who use the term arrivant. Um, and so I, I I liked to use, I, I kind of adopted that, that term in in the book because I think that it challenges us as, um, uh Um, in her books, Staking Claim, Judy Rohrer talks about, you know, thinking about what it means to arrive in places and the consequences Mm -hmm. of our coming to place. And so I, I liked her articulation of that. And that's why I started to use that term. You know, you can't fit everybody into this, these two categories of settler and, and, and and indigenous. There are people who fill these, these kind of in-between spaces, um, and that can be said for any settler colony, and so I started to think about this—the potentialities of this third category, arrivant or exogenous other—knowing that it's incredibly complex, that it is an umbrella term that is being used, um, and it—you and it, know—it's helpful, but it simultaneously kind of flattens diversity. But I started to use that term and adopt that term so that I could constantly hold myself accountable and constantly question what it means to be here. What does it mean? Um, that I've arrived here that I've come here what are the consequences of my coming um, and and further than that if I if I'm going to hold myself accountable to arriving and being here what does that mean what does that look like um, how do I stand in solidarity with 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 maori with togata Finwa um, how how do I continue to hold on to my own indigenous identity while also recognizing where I'm where I'm at um, and so that chapter kind of digs into um, me exploring my own positionality and I and I, I don't think I've figured it all out. It's something that I continue to explore. I'm actually working on a co-authored piece right now about, about positionality um, with three mm-hmm. other writers. And so um, yeah, it's something that I, I, I'm just, yeah, continually trying to work through and think about. and I think just that the purpose of that chapter is to kind of just put out these, um, these questions and these considerations, hoping that other people will, will also pick up the conversation and, and think a bit more critically about where they are and what it means to be there, whether they're indigenous or, or not.
1: Yeah, I really found that found it very useful. Um... And I'm looking forward to that piece on positionality um, mm-hmm. soon. Um, I wanted to take a step back towards uh, sort of wrapping up the, uh, the yeah. interview mm-hmm. uh, and ask you about genre. Um, you mentioned at the beginning uh, a little bit about the process of um, cutting out parts from your dissertation <laughs> research yes. um, and then repackaging and adding mm-hmm. new elements, rewriting. Mm-hmm. I yes. noticed that it's a very interdisciplinary uh, book, you shift between the personal, the spiritual, the historical, yes. and even the poetic. Mm. Um, the um, book starts with uh, a poem uh, written by yourself with the title of the, the book as well. Yes. So I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, mm. um, how did you think about this kind of sort of mixed genre um, approach, which oh. uh, is quite specific studies? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, um, Um, it has a long tradition in that. And uh, Mm -hmm. how did you, how do you see yourself in that tradition um, of of writing a very sort of mixed interdisciplinary work?
2: Right. Thank you. That's an excellent question. Um, I, as you mentioned, I'm, I teach in Pacific studies, Pacific studies is quite interdisciplinary. Um, So we encourage our students to, you know, to bring the multiple voices and perspectives and, and, um, and disciplines together, you know, we we acknowledge and we honor um, the power of poetry and the power of arts, and and how that should sit alongside the power of the journal article and the book um, reference and <laughs> citation, and how citing your ancestors and your and the, an interview with your grandmother is just as important as as citing you know something that is is published in in the library. And so, I think I just naturally started to do that because of my work in Pacific studies. Um, but in terms of the voice and, and how personal it is, um, I some oh I can't remember the year, but some years ago, actually, while I was doing my Ph.D. research, I started a blog um, and the, the blog was really just my way to kind of write one because I love I actually love to write. It's it's one of my passions, um, but it was also a space where I could kind of work through some of the things that I was thinking about in terms of my Ph.D. Um, and when I Submitted my PhD um, work and and as a book manuscript, the two editors of the of the series Indigenous Pacifics came back and and what I now see is actually the biggest compliment. They said we like it, but we'd like it to also sound more like your blog. And on the blog, hmm. I am really personal and I mix things together. And there's poetry in there, and there's personal essay, and then and then there's you know there's research and. I mix things together and I think in the blog, it just felt natural. You know, you don't feel like you're confined to any particular rules and you're not limited because it's your space (laughs) and it's not being, you know, you can do whatever you want basically. And, and I, yeah, I just thought that that was such a huge compliment that they said, we love the tone and the voice and the, and, and the, the feel that we get from your blog. Can you bring more of that into the book? Um, And so when I started to revise it, I just actually took, um, I took that as inspiration, and I said, you know, how would you make this sound like an extended blog, a really long blog? And and what I appreciate about their feedback in terms of you know making it sound more like the blog is that when I started blogging and I started to put posts up, um, you know, I had a really small reading. It was more, mostly my family reading it, and a few a few friends. And then over time, more family members started to read it, and I'd I'd have aunties who would. Um, you know, didn't want to read it on the screen. And so they would print out all of my blogs and they'd read it. And I, I loved the fact that it was accessible, Um, that it wasn't something that, you know, people would look at and go, oh, this is too academic or this is just for university people. It was open to everyone. And so when I wrote the book, I wanted to make sure that it, it was academic and it was rigorous, but that, you know, that, but that it was also accessible and even if people just read the poem or, or just read bits and pieces, I hope that anyone and everyone um, can find something in it. And so, and that's so that's kind of the thought that that went into it. It, it is this interdisciplinary because that's the field you know that's where I come from in Pacific studies. But also, um, I wanted it to be something that that spoke to people um, in the way that a, that a personal blog does.
1: Yeah, I really love that about the book, uh, reading so many straight up academic books, uh, which <laughs> yours is, is as well. But it's also yeah. so many other things. Um, mm-hmm. So that was really a refreshing uh, read. Um, so you just finished this book, just came out earlier this yeah. year. Um, I wanted to end really by asking you what else you're working on. You mentioned an article on positionality. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's What's next for you? Where, where's the next uh, uh, step in this in this journey for you?
2: You know, um, a few weeks ago, I got, um, I've been been getting some beautiful emails from people who've read the book, and and I got an email from someone who I I just highly respect and highly regard, and he said, you know, I can see you developing Kahiki even further. Um, Uh He was like, I love the book, and I I could see you even expanding more, and and so there is something there that, you know, I thought, wow, I I could see where Kahiki takes me and, and how it helps me in the future. And, and I I'd love to explore what else I have to say about it. I know there's heaps more. Um I am. So in terms of big book projects, I I'm still kind of dreaming at this point. I don't know where exactly I want to take it, but I do know that
0: hmm.
2: when I wrote the book um, it was 2019 and then 2020 happens, you know, and there's right. so much happens in 2020 with COVID and, you know, the black lives matter movement. And, and um, in 2020, I spent a lot of time engaged with uh, engaged in activism against RIMPAC, which is the Rim of the Pacific military war games that happen in Hawaii every other year. And so my work lately has been focused on militarism and d de- and demilitarization, and that doesn't come across very strongly in the book. Um, and so you know, I've been thinking about you know how kahiki can help us to work through these other things that I that I didn't really talk about in the book. Um, and so we'll see if that if that you know, comes out in in book chapters or articles in the future, or if it develops into something, something bigger, I don't know, but I'm kind of excited to see where, yeah, where Kahiki can take me uh, in the future.
1: Kahiki, the sequel. Uh, Those all (laughs) sound like, like amazing projects. Uh, uh, Emelani, I wanted to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care.
2: Thank you so much.